All right, good morning once again. Welcome to Open Anchor Church. I'm excited to uh, open God's Word today. And as every week, my prayer is this. My prayer is that as we open God's Word, each of us would open up something inside of ourselves to be receptive to that Word. Because when we come to the living and active Word of God, we can expect that not only is Christ in our midst, but that the Holy Spirit of God is active here. And wherever it is you need God to speak in your life, wherever it is that you need uh, the Holy Spirit to come and point out uh, sin, to uh, bring hope and encouragement, that's um, what happens when we make ourselves available. Because the Scriptures are really the primary way that God has revealed Himself and His will to us. This is how we learn about Jesus. This is how we learn about His will for us, His mission in the world, that which we get to be a part of through faith in Jesus. So I'm excited about today, kind of. Let me explain. I've been doing this for a while. I've been preaching, preaching in some form or fashion since the year of our Lord, 2000. <laughs> and uh, so you'd think that having slaved over a hot Bible every week since then, I wouldn't be nervous. I wouldn't wake up at five in the morning with like uh, anxious dreams or, or thoughts about how it might go today. Well... I had a pastor friend, this is off topic, but pastor friend of mine, uh, he said that for years and years he was a pastor and a preacher and uh, he made his living by the sweat of his tongue. <laughs> I thought that was kind of gross actually, but funny too. Anyway, uh, I woke up this morning having anxiety about today's message. Um, not that it would be offensive, but that it would be boring. Uh, in my dream, I was up here and nobody was paying attention. It was actually like, sounded like the House of Lords and the British Commons, like the Parliament. You know, what, this side was so distracted that they were yelling at that side and that side was yelling at that side. Have you ever seen like the British Parliament? It's nuts. That's what was going on. And I wasn't like involved in this at all. I'm just trying to do my thing and no one's paying attention. And that was just like, oh no, is that what's, I, I'm not saying this because I think that's what's going to happen. That was my dream, though, this morning, and I thought, oh, no, I hope today's not super-duper <laughs> uninteresting. But the trade-off is today may be a little shorter, so, you know, take the good with the bad. Brain falls on the good and the evil. All right. Today we're continuing in our teaching series through the life and ministry and the writings of the Apostle Paul. Our series is called Rock of Ages, and this is week number eight. And today's message is called A Fine Line. A Fine Line. Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. What? Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Does anyone, uh, is anyone familiar with that verse? That's a Bible verse. Your Bible might say, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We've heard that so much that we're like, yes, amen. But think about it. The New Living Translation says, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. If we really listen to that, there's something in us probably that goes, wait, what? No, no, living is better. Dying is not so better. But no, in the early part of the Apostle Paul's letter to the believers in Philippi, he says this startling phrase. And it strikes us, and it's stricken, it's stricken, stricken, striked every believer since as a little bit odd, I think, upon first hearing. Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. What could he possibly mean? 
Living is good, but dying is better? Well, let's hear it in context. If you have your Bible, there's one in front of you there, and maybe you have it on your phone. But look at Philippians chapter 1. This is the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 26 is what we'll look at. Here the Apostle Paul says, For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ, as I have been in the past, and I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I, I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will, I will remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. Okay, did you hear that in context? What is Paul trying to say here? Someone help me out. What's Paul trying to say here? Why is living good but dying is even better? Help me out. Why is he saying it's good that he would continue living? He could preach the word. He could, he could have more fruitful work for the kingdom. He could bless the people in his care. But why does he say dying would be even better? Yeah, he would actually be in the living presence of the Lord. Wow, I mean, comparatively, yeah, this is good, but that's even better, right? That's great. So that's some context for that. What Paul seems to be highlighting here is the fact that his whole existence, his whole existence bears potential to bring honor to Christ. His whole existence, both now and in the hereafter. His living here in this time and living in the age to come has the potential to bring honor to Christ Jesus. If he lives, he continues serving Christ and doing more fruitful work, as he said. And if he dies, his death can bear witness to his faith in Jesus and bring him glory and ultimately, uh, for Paul's joy, unite him with Christ forever. Is this a strange thought for you? I mean, it's foreign for sure. I mean, I don't think I've been in that position where it's like my life's kind of like on edge. Like, oh, I don't know. I mean, tomorrow I might die. Tomorrow I might live. Who knows? Uh, I'm not sure which is better. We don't kind of, we're kind of insulated from this kind of uh, thinking, right? Because we're pretty comfortable. We're pretty safe. But to think this way, if I live, I can continue serving Christ. If I die, I can bear faithful witness to him and I'll be united to him forever. Paul genuinely seems torn. He seems t genuinely torn here about which would be better. Here at what, what he was sensing to be the mo one of the most challenging times of his life and his ministry. Does anyone know what was going on in Paul's life as he wrote the Philippian letter, the letter to the Philippians? Yeah, he's in prison. That's always a safe bet with Paul, right? <laughs> he's either, well, he's in jail. Yes, good, good choice. Uh, yes, Paul had been sentenced to two years of house arrest for preaching the gospel. And he was probably imprisoned in Rome, but he might have also been imprisoned in Ephesus or Caesarea. Either way, here he is awaiting trial. You know how stressful that would be? 
It's like when you have like the test at the end of a semester or something, you know it's out there, you know it's coming. This thing that just adds a lot of like stress and weight to your life. It's like, oh, can't wait to be beyond that. Well, here he is and he's awaiting something. He has been sentenced to house arrest and he's waiting trial. And the settlement of his case always carried with it the possibility of things going very badly. The outcomes of his trial always had the possibility of execution and death. Paul was clear, it was clear in his mind that how things played out might actually lead to his death. So when he says, I don't know if it's better to continue living or to die, death was a real possibility for him. It wasn't purely theoretical or conceptual. It was like, I might die, actually. And I'm honestly con I'm conflicted about which would be better, which outcome I prefer. So execution and death was a real possibility. At this moment, the Apostle Paul seems to possess a startling clarity, a searing insight regarding life and death. Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. His circumstances, his situation brought to him a certain type of clarity that uh, Samuel Johnson famously noted when he said, depend, on a, depend upon it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Have you ever heard that, <laughs> that quote before? It's great. I'll say it again. Depend on it, sir. When a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. It's like impending death clarifies your thoughts. You can see pretty clearly when you know you're about to die. And I think this is what was going on in Paul. He was seeing very clearly, and it was really bringing things into stark contrast in his life. He knew that his time may be, may be growing short. Now, Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippian believers, is widely regarded as Paul's most joyful letter. Did you know that? Well, that in itself seems odd. He's in prison. Paul, Philippians is widely regarded as Paul's most joyful letter, which is strange given the circumstances in which it's written. The Expositor's Bible Commentary explains it this way. The most joyous book in the Bible comes from the pen of the author chained to a Roman guard. Isn't that weird? I mean, the, the most joyous book in the whole Bible comes from the pen of an author chained to a Roman guard. Many scholars believe Paul wrote Philippians in Rome just about the time Nero began feeding Christians to ravenous lions and burning them as torches to illuminate his banquets. In such an environment, how could joy possibly thrive? Paul points to Jesus' death to show that God can take even the darkest moment in history and turn it into good. The cross and Jesus' triumph over death prove that nothing is powerful enough to stamp out a reason for joy in the Lord, as Paul says. Despite all the darkness and all the difficulty, all the things he had experienced and all the things he had seen his brothers and sisters in Christ experience could not stamp out the joy that he had because of Jesus. Now, clearly, Jesus had inculcated into his followers um, a double-edged regard for death. Death was always present in the reality, the lived reality of following Jesus. He inculcated into his followers a double-edged regard for death, both a desire to live and also a freedom from the fear of death. You understand? So Jesus says, hey, live well. Live fully, have life, and have it abundantly. However, do not fear death. 
throughout the pages of Scripture, and indeed throughout the history books about the early church, we see godly people facing death with peace, a peace that passes understanding. You see our early brothers and sisters in Christ going gladly to their fate, being burned at the stake, thrown to the wild beasts, and they never stop praying. They never stop uh, singing hymns and encouraging each other, looking forward to when they too will be united with Christ. It strikes us as odd because it truly does pass understanding. What did they have? How did their faith put such steel in their spine that when faced with the animals tearing them limb from limb, when being burned at the stake, when being uh, like, like Nero did, you know, ostensibly, strapping them, dipping them in tar, strapping them to a post and lighting them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. I mean, how could they say, Jesus will be glorified in this. I will bear true witness here in this final moment. Praise be to God. So, it's, it's like there was a sense of joy and of purpose given by God that was able to straddle the divide between life and death. Did you know you're kind of spiritually amphibious? <laughs> you're living on both sides of the divide. You're living now, truly and eternally, yet you're living already now in the presence of the Lord. Uh, my wife and I were talking this morning about, does anyone remember the Colossus of Rhodes? It was a, an ancient statue, one of the seven wonders of the world. I know I've got homeschool families here, so I guarantee you know what the Colossus of Rhodes is on the uh, Greek island of Rhodes, and it stood at the harbor entrance between uh, the harbor, the great harbor of Rhodes. And many illustrations show the Colossus of Rhodes standing with one foot on each side of the entrance, so to sail in, you had to sail between his feet into this harbor. Now, we were talking about how most uh, archaeologists now think that that was not true, but it actually was on the eastern side of the harbor. But anyway, I like the idea. The Colossus of Rhodes, a wonder of the world, standing there striding the harbor. And that's kind of like us. We're standing with one foot on each side of the divide. We're living uh, between life and death. These Christians that we read about, both in the Bible and in, the, in early church history, they were content uh, in living, fostering vitality, yet they also at the same time possessed a certain resolve. It's like they held to a promise given by God that in facing death and bearing witness to their hope, they would have eternal union, everlasting union with Christ Jesus himself. So regardless of what happens, living or dying, you will be with Christ. And this is what the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does. It did it for them, it did it for Peter, it did it for Paul, and it will do it for us. This is what the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does. It announces that life is not, this life is not all there is. We are living forever, even now. Even now, although death is terrible and tragic in Christ, death does not get the last word. Amen. In Christ, death does not get the last word. C.S. Lewis, he traced this double-edged paradox, that like living in life and living in death. I mean, we're on both sides of the divide. He traced this double-edged paradox in an essay he wrote called Some Thoughts. That's what he called it. Here's some thoughts. Some thoughts. He said, At first sight, nothing seems more obvious that religious persons should care for the sick. 
No Christian building, except perhaps a church, is more self-explanatory than a Christian hospital. Yet, on further consideration, the thing is really connected to the undying paradox, the blessedly two-edged character of Christianity. And if any of us were now encountering Christianity for the first time, he would be vividly aware of this paradox. Lewis goes on to point out that much of, the, much of Christian work in the world is directed toward the world's preservation and betterment. Have you noticed this? Much of the work, work of the church throughout history has been to bring healing, to bring uh, relief, to help people in this world. Much of Christian work in the world is directed toward its preservation and betterment in areas like healthcare, justice, art, education, government, humanitarian work, marriage and family, and the list goes on. Why do we care so much about what goes on here? Um, think about hospitals. Uh, Christine and I, again, we had a good conversation. My wife and I talked a lot this morning. Uh, hospitals. Did you know that hospitals are almost exclusively a Christian idea? In the Roman world, in which the, the church was, was planted and, and spread across the Roman Empire, hospitals did not exist in the Roman Empire. The only people who had physicians available, who had health care available, were who? The rich people, those who could afford it, and those who owned slaves. Slaves would get health care. Why? Because the rich people that owned them wanted their workforce healthy and productive. Right? So unless you were rich or a slave, you didn't have health care. The poor, the people who had nothing to offer to society, they just got sick and they died. But you've heard the stories of when plague took root and started to spread in the great cities of the Roman Empire. The rich people and their slaves were fleeing. Yet historians noticed something peculiar happening among the Christians. What were the Christians doing? Everyone was splitting, leaving the city, yet the Christians were going into the city to care for the sick, to care for the dying, and in doing so, they often became sick, they often died, yet in all of it, they lived an example. They bore witness to Christ and His healing work even now. So hospitals, healthcare, serving others, that is uniquely Christian. So Lewis points out that the Christian work in the world is directed toward its preservation and betterment. Conversely, though, Lewis notes that all these activities take place under the symbol of a man dying on a cross, die, taking place under the image of death and suffering. How strange. We're working for life and healing, yet we're doing it in the image, under the image of a man who's dying on a cross suffering. Much of the Christian faith centers around the ideal of faithful death, of what's called martyrdom, a constant meditation on our mortality and death, a constant meditation on the hereafter. Right? Have you understood this? That we think, oh, it's all about my, that great getting up morning when I'm finally in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. That brings great consolation and that brings hope. Ultimately, faith in Jesus points one toward a future reality, toward another world which lies in its fullness and fulfillment on the other side of what? Death. So at once we're a, we're a life-consumed bunch of people who are also death-consumed. How is this? What is this? At once, our Christian faith plants one foot in the world 
and the other foot in the next. With Christians working to overcome the carnage of sin and ignorance here, while also being at peace and reconciled with the inevitability, yet transient nature of death. While we are here, we are working for both justice and healing. We are working for justice and healing now, but ultimately, we await ultimate justice. We await ultimate justice and healing in eternity. So Lewis concludes, Either conclusion about Christianity would be justified if a man had only the one or the other half of the evidence before him. It is when he puts both halves together, the here and hereafter, and sees that Christianity cuts right across the classification he was attempting to make. It is then that he first knows what he is up against, and I think he is bewildered. And true, in the church this can be bewildering as well, because as we talk about one foot planted here and the other planted in the hereafter, we find churches that fall on one side or the other of that divide and pay no attention, have no regard for the other. Uh, surely you've seen churches, uh, strands of the Christian faith that err on uh, the side of the now and the here, hoping to bring the kingdom to earth, that there is no uh, hereafter. It's all just about being social justice warriors here and now. But then there's other churches that are such, so heavenly-minded, they're of no earthly good. They don't see that there's, a, there's good, meaningful, life-giving work to be done now. So ours is to be able to stand over that divide faithfully. To understand we have a part to play, a way to participate in the here and the hereafter. So... Whew, this extended preamble was in, has been in service to this next phrase. At the end of Peter's ministry, we find that he died just as Jesus predicted. Let's pray. <laughs> no, that is true, though. At the end of his ministry, Peter died just as Jesus had predicted. Look in your Bible at John chapter 21. Verses 15 through 19. This is when Peter is being reinstated by Jesus after his denials when Jesus had been arrested. John 21, starting in verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. The third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you, Peter, were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. So Peter died, just as it had been predicted. Peter, the appointed founder of the church, was ultimately going to be imprisoned. Peter, the founder of the church, was ultimately going to face death. Why? Because of his faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, he would die because he followed and claimed to be a follower of Jesus the Nazarene. The very thing he denied in the, after the arrest of Jesus, he would go to his death claiming 
in the years to come. So Peter was to invest in kingdom work while he was alive, even knowing how it was going to end. He was to invest in kingdom work while he was alive and face death with confidence, knowing that his future was secure in Jesus. Now, most of what we know about when and how the Apostle Peter died comes not from Scripture. Did you know that? There's nowhere in the Bible you can go and read about how Peter died. Most of what we know comes from a man named Eusebius. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea in the 300s AD. Eusebius, he, uh, he indicates that Peter came finally to Rome after preaching, quote, in Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, and Asia to the Jews of the dispersion. Historically, Peter is considered to have been a victim of, of the Roman Emperor Nero's anger, his rage, which he vented on the Christians in the year AD 64. According to tradition, does anyone know how Peter died? He was crucified upside down, right? According to tradition, Peter was crucified like Jesus in a sneer at his faith. It's like, oh, Jesus follower, let's crucify you like your, 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 your Lord. So in a sneer to his faith, he says, hey, we'll crucify Peter. So he's crucified like him. Uh, it was an attempt to ridicule him and add insult in that final moment to his faith. Add insult to the injury. However, Peter in that moment felt unworthy. Unworthy of being crucified like his Lord. So I, he's not worthy to share the same death as Christ, so he requested to be crucified upside down. After his death, Peter was laid to rest in an unremarkable pagan cemetery in Rome, uh, which later became the site of Vatican City. And now his, uh, grave, his tomb, ostensibly, is beneath St. Peter's Basilica. So much more ornate and much more Christocentric now than it was at the time of his death. He was laid in just an, uh, an, uh, a pagan cemetery among other commoners. Nothing special about that. Doesn't it seem, though, that Peter's death, the martyrdom of the rock upon which Christ would build his church, should be noted in, in Scripture? You think that might be put in there somewhere? I mean, it's a pretty big deal, right? We read about some others dying, but not Peter. And so why didn't this make it into Scripture? What are we to make of the obscurity regarding the end of Peter's life and ministry? Here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know why it's not in there. I'm not sure why it's not included. I'm not sure, but I think it serves to illustrate a point. I think it serves to illustrate the ultimate purpose of our life with Jesus. And it's this, and I think it's reflected well here. Our life and our death are really not about us. Our life and our death, they really aren't about us. They're ultimately about honoring God. Everything about who you are in the days you've been given on this earth and what you'll be doing in all eternity is about honoring God through Christ Jesus. It reminds me of the New City Catechism. I don't know if you're familiar with the New City Catechism, but question number one in the New City Catechism asks the question, what is our only hope in life and death and the answer in the New City Catechism is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, and soul, both in life and in death, to God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where the Catechism starts. What is our only hope in life and death? 
It's that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We have been bought with a price, and we are not our own. And because of that, we are safe in the arms of Jesus. We are secure in the family of God. And nothing can truly harm us in life or in death. So if we live, great. More fruitful work to be done. But if I die, I'll be united with Christ. While we are alive, we labor for the renewal of creation. We labor for the salvation of mankind. We participate faithfully in the mission of God in the world. Yes. But in our death, hear this, friends. In our death, we fall into the arms of a gracious God. We fall into the arms of a gracious God who loves us and who will raise us up into new life forever with Him and with Christ Jesus in the world to come. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for that encouragement. God, while we live in a time that is in a lot of ways different than what the first century believers were experiencing, God, that reality is never too far off. Lord, times could change. Circumstances, circumstances could deteriorate. And Christians even now in the Western world, in North America, could start facing hostility. Could start facing circumstances that make death uh, more of an imminent reality or possibility. So God, I pray that we would have the wisdom, that we'd have the assurance that Peter had, that Paul had, that the early Christians had, that living in the shadow of death, they would be a people of resilient hope. Hope that is stronger than the grave. A faith that clings to Jesus in his, the power of His resurrection, knowing that although they may take our bodies, that they may take our lives, we are safe and secure in You. And that same power that raised Jesus from the grave will raise us up in the last day. So no, no one and nothing can take that which has been truly given to us through faith in Jesus. And we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that we would do a better job of holding intention and, and straddling that divide. Seeing our purpose and our mission in this world during the days we've been given, yet understanding that it all takes place against the backdrop of eternity with you. That there's direct bearing and connection between what we do and how we live faithfully now and how we will live and what we'll be doing in eternity. And so, God, I pray that we would be wise enough, durable enough in our faith and in our thinking to honor you in both. That we're not just waiting to get out of here to go to some ethereal place that has no connection to here. And that we wouldn't just busy ourselves here with no thought of the hereafter, of how we will spend eternity. God, I pray that we would be ambidextrous. That we'd be spiritual amphibians. Be able, to, be able to dwell and faithfully live and participate in both worlds, God. Help us develop the understanding and the skill to do both and to honor you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that we can rest. Thank you that we will indeed fall into the arms of a gracious Lord who loves us and who has, will raise us up in the last day through the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for Jesus. Hey, this morning we're going to share communion together. This is the first Sunday of the month when we get to approach the table of remembrance. 
Why is it called the table of remembrance? Because in doing so, we're able to remember something. Remember how Jesus saved sinners like us through the shedding of his blood and the, the breaking of his body as he was stretched out upon that cross, as he was bled dry of blood for the glory of God and for the good of those who would trust in him. This is what we do. We come, we take the cup, we take the bread, and we say, we remember Jesus. We remember the sacrifice. We remember the price that you paid to purchase us and our salvation. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to take a few moments to prepare. I believe uh, it's appropriate and right for us to sit, to step into the light of Christ, to say, search me and know me. Maybe there's some sin, some unconfessed sin. Maybe there's some just uh, stubbornness of heart that you need to say, Jesus, heal this. Forgive this. We want to approach this table of remembrance rightly. So when you're ready, you can come and be served. Secondly, you need to know we practice open communion. This is for all who have trusted in Jesus, for the family of God, not just the family of this church. This may be your first time at Open Anchor Church, but if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please share with us, partake with us. Now, after you've introspected and, and prayed, I'll ask that you come down the center aisle, be served, and then return to your seat down the side aisles. Then once everyone has been served, we'll partake together.